Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. It scared me that if I make writing this book my goal, I will have to become her. I will have to not even become her. I will have to allow myself to be her because it required me to be more of myself. And being myself in certain ways, um, being honest about my life really, really scared me. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. Oh, I'm so happy to say that today we have Ashley Ford on the podcast. She's a writer and a podcast host herself, and she's the author of Somebody's Daughter, which is a memoir of her childhood. Ashley grew up in Indiana. Her mother was a corrections officer, and her father was incarcerated when she was really young. She had a difficult and violent relationship with her mother. Her family was struggling with poverty. And then when she was a young teen, she learned why her father, who she felt really close to even though he wasn't home, she learned why he was incarcerated. He'd been convicted of rape. Ashley herself had been sexually assaulted only a year before she found this out. 
This book was an immediate New York Times bestseller, and it's really the story of how Ashley learned to find home and family in herself. There's a passage that I really love sort of early in the book, and we refer to it in our conversation, so I wanted to offer part of it here for context. It's at a point in the story when young Ashley is spending the summer with her grandmother, and she's asked not to be sent back to her mother's house. And outside in the garden, she sees this tangle of garden snakes writhing together in a hole. Her grandmother douses them with lighter fluid and tosses a match into the hole. Here's the passage. The snakes didn't slither away or thrash around as they burned. They held each other tighter. Even as the scales melted from their bodies, their inclination was to squeeze closer to the other snakes wrapped around them. They did not panic. They did not run. You'll have to go back. We'll both go back home. Your mama misses you. My grandmother reached over and grabbed my hand, both of us still staring into the hole. These things catch fire without letting each other go. We don't give up on our people. We don't stop loving them. She looked into my face, her eyes watering at the bottoms. Not even when we're burning alive. And with that, here's Ashley Ford. I, I grew up watching and, and taking in a lot of media about either kids who were being hurt or harmed or neglected um, by adults who had forgotten what it was like to be children or who were kind of trying to, to sacrifice the children to their own delusions. Um, and also there were a lot of movies about adults who were trying to reclaim a part of themselves or, or, or remember a part of themselves. And that always required them um, remembering their childhood and remembering who they had been as children. I spent a lot of my life I think, in a way, believing without consciously deciding to believe it, that I had not been a whole person when I was a child. And in my quest to, to heal some of my mental and, and emotional wounds and issues, um, I realized that a part of the reason why I kept bumping up against a lot of these things, a lot of these issues, a lot of these circular problems, um, was that I was not living in reality. <laughs> I was, I was, I was trying to base my feelings about my behavior, about the circumstances of my life, about the circumstances I was living in at any given moment. I was trying to base those off of fantasies and and what things should be like or or what people should be like and all of this stuff. And it took a minute for me to figure out that um, if you keep trying to live inside a fantasy, yeah, you're going to be pretty, pretty miserable half the time. <laughs> I was telling myself that there were emotions I wasn't supposed to have. Whoa. I was telling myself that anger, frustration, sadness, that if I were a better person or a better human, I would not have to experience those feelings. That's what I'd been taught. Anytime something happened to me, anytime something happened to the people around me, um, my 
education, my social education was that you have to immediately find out whose fault it is immediately. Who is to blame for this? And a lot of times the answer is going to be you because, you know, (laughs) in not so many words, because you couldn't read the future. And I had to ask myself, like, wait a minute. (laughs) First of all, I, I was a child, you know, and second of all, nobody could read the future. That's not a thing we can do. So, so why do I think something's wrong with me? Why do I think that having anger, having frustration, having disappointment means something is wrong with me? Even though those are emotions that everybody experiences and everybody has. Everybody has to deal with it. Um, yeah, I was trying to live a life that can't exist. And all of my goals were about living that life that can't exist. And I just didn't want to do that to myself anymore. When did you start to realize that that this, that, that wasn't working? College. I want to say uh, I was in college for a really long time. <laughs> By the way, like a really long time. Um, I graduated high school and started college that fall of 2005. Um, and I did not get my degree until 2018. Mm-hmm. So I was on campus for a while and I was around 24 years old and I was finally an English major because I'd spent a lot of time in other majors because I thought they were more practical trying to make them work because I couldn't be honest about reality, which was uh, I don't do well in those spaces. I might be smart enough for them. I might do well enough to get the grade, but I don't do well. I'm miserable when I'm doing that kind of work. And I had to get honest with myself because I realized if you keep trying to get these quote unquote practical jobs and these quote unquote practical majors, you're never going to graduate at all. You need to find something that you actually like to do. And that you can count on yourself to show up to do. And that was being in creative writing. That was my English major. It's the only thing I could count on myself to really show up for academically with all of myself and not make myself miserable in the process. And I think when I made that shift and almost immediately found so much success as a student, not just like as a as a person who's around, as a person that people like to be around. But as a student, my professors respected and liked me and were impressed by some of the things I could do and wanted to teach me how to be good. And I loved it. And I never would have gotten it if I had kept lying to myself so that I could fit in a different version of a fantasy that that was never going to be for me. It sounds like that was sort of the beginning of the process of realizing that you needed to accept the facts on the ground, whether that was like the emotional ground or the, just like the facts of your, what you liked and what what you wanted and where you did well. Um, How do you feel like, do you feel like you draw a line between that moment and the book that I'm holding in my hands? Absolutely. Absolutely, because that's when I started writing this book. Oh my gosh. All yeah. the way then. 
Then, then, 2010, I took a class with Dr. Jill Chrisman, um, a nonfiction class that I never would have taken if it wasn't required for my major because I had no interest in writing nonfiction. It wasn't what I wanted to do in any capacity. And I took this class and she blew my mind. And I, I had this magical group of fellow students in that class. And we were all workshopping and getting together outside of class to work together, um, starting little projects on our own, coordinating readings on our own. Like it was just amazing. This community came up around it. And I felt so safe and so held by that community that even though I had been conditioned by my family, you know, what happens in this house stays in this house. You don't talk about what we do with other people. You just don't do it. Suddenly, I felt free from that expectation and also realized that that was not helping anybody. The silence that my family wanted and in some cases demanded from me wasn't actually helping them. They were all still so sad in a lot of cases, so so mad about things, things they couldn't touch, things they couldn't talk about, things that triggered them to a point that I just, I wanted something different. And I felt like I was finding it on campus while writing in this nonfiction class. And I wrote the scene with the snakes that's in my book while I Mm. was in that class. And at the end of the semester, Dr. Jill Chrisman, after, you know, having these conferences with all the students, got to my conference and she told me, I don't know if you want to write it. I don't know if you'll ever write it, but this is a book. This is the center and the core of a book. And I really hope I get to read that book someday. Wow. Yeah. How did that feel? At the time, it was terrifying. I was almost mad at her for saying it to me. Like, I wasn't actively mad at her. <laughs> it wasn't like I was like, why would you say that to me? But I, inside myself, I was angry about it because I really wanted to abandon it. What I, I think even then, I realized that the person I would have to become in order to write the book I wanted to write was a version of me I could not yet truly fathom. And it scared me that if I make writing this book my goal, I will have to become her. I will have to not even become her. I will have to allow myself to be her because it required me to be more of myself. And being myself in certain ways, um, being honest about my life really, really scared me. It sounds like, I mean, based on what you're saying right now, but also certainly on the book that that was, that was because you had explicitly been told that all of the, not just being honest, but also being more and more of yourself was a dangerous proposition. Absolutely. I had explicitly been told that, you know, one of the things that is not in the book, but that I've talked about a few times, um, especially when I've uh, gone to speak in person places, is that, um, you know, 
I was also raised to think of myself as, as, as an inconvenience. My mother used to tell me that people really didn't want me around, but I couldn't tell. And I needed her to tell me when people didn't want me around. And that um, when my friend's parents would invite me over for dinner or ask if I wanted to spend the night, like sometimes I could do that. But then sometimes my mom would just be like, you were there two weeks ago. They don't really want you there. They're just saying that. They're just being nice. And you're just not getting it. You can't tell that they're just being nice. And I didn't know what to do with that. So I, you know, I believed her that people really didn't want me around, that they were just being nice. And that has, you know, in some ways turned me into an adult who still struggles with that. I I am lucky to have good and close friends, but a lot of that work has been on their end because I have a lifetime of not reaching out to people because my brain thinks I'm bothering them whenever I reach out, even if it's just to say hello, even if it's just to share a joke. There's a part of my brain that tells me they're going to look at this and roll their eyes. They're going to look at this and turn to another person and be like, I wish she would stop texting me. I wish she wouldn't call. I wish she wasn't coming. And they're not going to say it to me because they're too nice. But that's what they really think. And I still battle that. That's really hard. Yeah. I'm amazed. I mean, it's pretty amazing that you managed to write a book about yourself. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the, the yeah. gesture of writing a book about your own life is like such a, such an assertion, such an assertion of self into the world. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell me about getting there. And also it sounds, I'm, I'm, I keep wanting to hear more about this feeling of choosing reality mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a portal. How did you get from where you're describing to, to being able to put this book into the world? I think it's by or was by accepting the fact that this feeling isn't ever going to go away. I just have to figure out what to do with it when it shows up. The feeling of being an intrusion, um, the feeling of betraying the people who love you by not being silent about the ways they've harmed you. All of that. Um, I, I sometimes still feel guilt. I feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said, maybe I shouldn't have done. But now I have the ability to sit with myself and go, okay, that's your first reaction. Now let's think about it a little more. And what's your second reaction? And the second reaction is, well, this is my story. This happened to me. I own this story. And every human has a right to their own story. But I still kind of feel bad. And it's like, okay, well, let's keep talking about it. It's okay that you feel bad, but we're not going to distract ourselves from the feel bad. And we're not just going to stop at I feel bad. We're going to dig into it because otherwise I personally start to make these really thin associations between my moments of, of hardship or success 
and my value as a human being. And I can't afford that. So I have to let it all be true at the same time because that's reality. Reality is that like I I don't feel like I had a terrible childhood. And reality is also that a few terrible things happened to me (laughs) when I was a child. And both of those things have to be able to exist in the same place because they already do. Yeah, I mean, that's such a uh, like truth and emotional and spiritual truth that it feels like we have to learn over and over and over again. But I feel mm-hmm. like you're also describing um, how to write great nonfiction, <laughs> which I is, hope so. <laughs> you know, like this is like, it also sounds like you could be giving a craft lecture right now because so much of writing nonfiction has to be about not thinning out reality. Yes. And actually letting reality be as textured and weird and funky as it as it actually is and not yes. i mean by extension not not diluting people not diluting yourself or and i'm saying dilute like a solution with water not dilute like fooling right. yourself um like not diluting yourself or other people by writing them or by writing yourself but letting everyone be just as weird and textured and funky and complicated as as they actually are because that's real life right that that's what real life already is you know and some of the reactions to my book i feel like when people are so are so shocked by the fairness of it i guess to say the reality of it the fact that um I think I did a really good job of making sure there were no pure heroes, no no pure villains. Everybody's as complicated as they actually are in life um, and in my life. And people like that. Um, And it's not like they don't see it anywhere else. The thing that I think they don't see is it applied to the reality of children. People... Even people who know how ridiculous the next thing I'm going to say is um, still kind of behave as if they believe that when children turn 18, somebody hits a reset button. And anything that happened before 18 doesn't really count (laughs) anymore Um, because now you're an adult. So you just have to be responsible for whatever happened before then, no matter how poorly you've been prepared, no matter how underserved you've been, no matter if you've been neglected, no matter if you've been abused. Like when you hit 18, people behave as if, well, now you're an adult. So who cares about those things in your quote unquote past? (laughs) Who cares about the things in your, you should be able to just figure it out. You're an adult. And that is delusion. That is fantasy. Like that is the core of it. And because we force children to live in that fantasy because they are helpless and live at the whim of adult decision makers. We, I think, 
have a really hard time confronting uh, that lie. Because if we confront that lie, if we accept the lie that children are not whole people or that the things that happened to them in childhood don't, shouldn't really, like, we shouldn't take that into account when they're adults. If we really behave that way, if we really believe that, um, then that means that we have all signed on to essentially sacrifice children emotionally and mentally to whatever, mm, to our comfort. Do you feel like it's the dominant framework to suggest that children aren't affected by what happens to them and that that doesn't affect their adulthood? I feel like that's that's not something that feels like such a dominant ideology that I run into, but maybe I'm, Mm. maybe I'm like seeing, like, tell me, tell me more or like where, you know, I'm not just thinking about individuals. I'm thinking about systems, the systems we live in and the systems we live under. If we really believed that every child deserves that like good start, that good, healthy Mm -hmm. start, would, would there be like, we just ended. We're just, right now. We're working to end the federal free breakfast and lunch program. I know <laughs> for schools. I know we kids are being killed in their classrooms a, b- beside their teachers. Um, let's see. Uh, not every kid gets the chance to go to a school that has resources, or in some cases, even internet. <laughs> Some school, like there are places where kids have to go to school without internet in this country. There are kids who have never had a birthday party and they are not Jehovah's Witnesses. There are kids who basically spend their entire childhoods being told that despite having none of the creature comforts of the kids they see in movies, on TV, sometimes just on the other side of town, that they should be eminently grateful, just pure grateful for the fact that maybe they have a roof over their head and maybe they eat regularly. We talk about kids being the future. We talk about, you know, I want to do this for kids. I want to do that for kids. You know, that we're we're making changes in this country for the betterment of kids and, and just to protect the children because they're so precious and they're so important. And none of the things that actually affect their lives on a daily basis do we have any interest in addressing, um, even down to health care. I'm a person who's very opinionated and very, uh, very on the internet. Um, I think anybody who is familiar with my book is probably also familiar with that. And um, I have never received more online harassment in my entire life than when I raised money to pay off kids' lunch debts across the country. That's the most harassment I've ever received 
message after message, email after email, and they all basically say the same thing. If we feed the kids, we let their parents off the hook. And they're not my responsibility. They're their parents' responsibility. And if we let their parents get away with not paying the school to feed their kid, then what kind of person is that kid going to grow up to be? Maybe I'm just like a terrible cynic, but this, I had this feeling of like, well, of course, but those are (laughs) the people who enact those policies and the people who make those systems. I feel like they don't have an expectation that those kids are going to be okay or that they should be okay. They just devalue them. You know, like there's, there's no, like, how could they possibly uphold the fantasy that that those kids are going to hit 18 and just be fine or like good, you know, yep. workers in the corporate system or whatever. But the hell that is the standard to... that that's yeah. the standard that they're held to no matter what. It yeah. doesn't like it doesn't like in general, like it doesn't really matter. It's just like what standard are you actually being held to and right. what do you lose, you know, in some cases along the way as a kid who grew up in poverty with an incarcerated parent. I mean, I am just now learning how to want things again which sounds wild, right? So no, like, that sounds what do you, like it makes like, sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because when you're a kid who grows up in poverty, you think wanting things hurts people. Yeah. Because you see your mom cry because she can't get you something that you want. You see how other adults, when you say you want something, you know, correct you and be like, you know, don't say that to your mom or don't bring that up to your mom. She can't afford that. Like, and and you're going to, you know, you're going to hurt her feelings. You're going to hurt her feelings or hit, you're going to hurt your dad's feelings. You're going to hurt your grandma and grandpa's feelings. You know, you're, you're very much taught as a kid um, to have gratitude for the lack in your life. Mm-hmm. And then you get older and in some ways it feels like a superpower because you feel so much more capable and like you can handle so much more than your peers who grew up with a little more padding and a little more care. Um, but then you get to a place, if you're lucky, where it can be different. And instead of running toward that different, you are stuck in place because you just never thought you'd even get the chance to choose it. I feel like something that your book does so beautifully is kind of draw the way that these systems hurt everybody in a family or everybody in a community and affect the way that the people within a family hurt each other, right? Like it is, it is damaging to a little kid to be made to feel like when they want something, they're hurting people. And yet also the, the mother in that situation is in a, is in a terrible position is being hurt by systems and people as is, you know, and that's something that I, I thought you did so beautifully when you were writing your childhood, the childhood of your siblings, but also your mother who is a complicated and and in some, you know, like in some moments feels like a terrifying figure and in other moments feels like someone for whom we should feel just like so much empathy and respect. And similarly with your father. And I, I wanted to ask how you 
how did you feel your way th- to illustrating not just everybody in their full humanity, but then beyond that, kind of the systems around you in their full inhumanity? Mm-hmm. I think some of that was, um, you know, just getting the opportunity to learn about the systems. Uh, Despite being, you know, a young Black girl growing up in the Midwest, there was so much I did not understand about the way systemic racism works, the way um, class works, uh, the way educational systems work. There were so many things I did not understand until I went to college. And then uh, even then a couple of years into my college career was I introduced to um, literature and film and so many other things that really revealed to me um, the systems that I was a part of, how they had affected my life, how they had affected the culture and my community. Um, and once you see those things, you know, they don't really go away. It's it's so interesting because I think all the time about how, you know, woke now is just such a, almost like a pejorative term. But the whole point of like wokeness in my, in my assessment or why we called people woke is because it's that saying that once you've awakened, you can't go back to sleep. And there were a lot of things in college that activated my ability to see those systems in real time and in stark reality, because college was the first time I lived in a community where I was the minority. (laughs) It was the very first time. My school system was almost entirely Black. My neighborhood when I was growing up was mostly Black. I had not lived a life where I was surrounded by white people or white culture uh, until I was 18 and went to college. And there were so many things that I had not, (laughs) other people, I think especially Black people who had grown up around a white people, sort of a lot of white people took for granted but I couldn't. Um, and I also, you know, I have ADHD. I, I, I blurt. I, so it wasn't just like I'm noticing it. It's also that like I can't notice it and not want to talk about it. <laughs> so then I'm having conversations with people on campus like, how do you not know that? Or how do you live in a town that only has five Black people? What is that like for you? And noticing how many of them were just like, I never thought about it. (laughs) And I'm like, whoa, like, and you never thought about it? Like, what is going on here? And you take these classes and, 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 and the pieces start to come together. And once those pieces came together for me, you know, the way my brain works, they just, it doesn't go away. It doesn't drift into the background. And I think that's true for most Black people. A lot of the stuff, when we learn about it, it's like, oh, we recognized that before in some capacity. We just didn't know it had a name. Or we didn't know that like everybody uh, was dealing with that, or even most of us were dealing with that. And as soon as you have the language, oh, it's not that it, it's not that it influences you to see it. It's just that it gives you a name for what you've already felt and seen in a lot of cases your entire life. So, yeah, 
the system is a character because I'm, I'm writing about being a Black girl in America. There is no being a Black girl in America without having to confront the systems um, that were designed to limit and oppress you. It's scary. (laughs) It's scary. It's so scary. It's still scary. It's still scary because as much as I benefit from being honest with myself, as much as I seek to be honest with myself, I hate confronting myself. I hate it. I hate having to, to look back behind me down that road and walk it so that I can observe it again and meeting myself on that road, meeting a past version of Ashley who still lives inside me because every version of me lives inside me at the same time. But now I got to look at her like and say, hey, girl, uh, (laughs) this was not the move. You should have done something very different here. And these people are not your people. And you are so upset and so distraught and you're going to be this way for a while. And I know it because obviously I've been here. But real quick, we don't ever have to do this to ourselves again. We don't ever have to abandon ourselves this way again. We might feel this way again, but baby, we do not have to choose it. It's not our job. We don't have to suffer. Pain will find us, but suffering is not a requirement. Mm. And that helps me. That helps me a lot to be able to create in a way that allows me to look back without stopping me from moving forward. And I think that that's really hard to balance. That's really hard to figure out. Yeah. But, and it's scary. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's always scary. Were you scared of how it would change, you know, looking so directly at the past would change your relationship with both of your parents? Mm. Yes and no. Um, I know my mom. Right. Like I know I know how she's going to react to things. I know in general what she is capable of. So I was worried in some cases that, you know, she might say certain things about me to people or whatever. Um, But I had to ask myself, you know, and okay, so what if she does? And what is that going to do to your life? How are you going to feel about that? You mean she might read what you wrote and then try to deny deny it or deny you? Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. Not necessarily with like, I knew my mom well enough to know that like, she's not going to like, what, call my publisher. 
or <laughs> a reporter or something and be like, I don't agree with this. And I, you know, like that's not going to happen. But I know my mom well enough to know that when she's uncomfortable, she does not sit well in herself to deal with that. So she will call a lot of other people as sort of a recruitment tactic to sort of be like, let me talk to them and get them on my side before, you know, they're on her side. But she won't say that to me. It's like a thing that she'll just do behind my back. And it's not a kind thing to do. It's definitely not the kind of mother-daughter relationship that I would choose um, or behavior that I would choose. But I know my mom and I know she's capable of it. I know that that's something she might do, that she might try to do. And I have to ask myself how much that matters to me. How much does it actually matter to me if my mom calls him? It might make me upset. I might be mad at her. But is that enough of a reason to not express myself creatively? And that is a hearty no, a strong no. So, yeah. And with my dad, it's even, even less tense because the stakes for our relationship are both very high and very low. Anytime we're around each other, it's it's a new thing, kind of, you know, after 30 years of somebody being in prison, every time I'm around my dad, he says a word that I've never heard him say before. He tells a story that I've never heard him tell before mm-hmm. and vice versa. So it's really easy for us to sort of be like, you know, or for me to feel like, OK, so let's say he reads something and doesn't like it and he's upset with me. Well, I'm upset with you for being gone my entire childhood. So I guess we're both have something to figure out. <laughs> you know, like, right. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, I'm, I don't worry about it anymore. And I think I worried about it a little before the book came out. But since then, yeah, I just, I feel good about what I've done. Yeah. But I mean, even, even in sort of earlier in the process, I don't know, sometimes I've had experiences writing about a relationship that feels complicated and I'm going to try to get into it on the page. Sometimes I feel scared that I'm going to have to change my mind about a person or or know something about them that maybe I'm afraid to know. And that's kind of even more what I was asking. It's like, were you afraid were you afraid to write your parents because of a way you might have to change your mind about them? Absolutely. In a way that I would have to uphold my own boundaries. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, I, I was not able to finish my book until I went away to a place I call trauma camp <laughs> and stayed there for about a week. Um, doing intensive therapy with a group. That is... What's trauma camp? Trauma camp uh, is a place. I know some people who might want to know about it. (laughs) It's a facility. Um, The the facility is actually called Onsite, um, O-N-S-I-T-E, and it's in Tennessee. And... It was suggested to me by my therapist. 
And I was not going to go because I was like this. I was like, Peter, if you got me going to some cult stuff, <laughs> if you got me going to some like I'm, I will. And he was like, why would I do that? I'm your therapist. Why would I send you somewhere that I am not totally convinced would be, you know, like at least useful to you? And it was at that point, the biggest financial investment I had made in myself, like as far as, you know, plunking down a sum of money, um, which makes it sound like it was a lot more expensive than it was. It it wasn't. But as far as plunking down a sum of money and saying this money is for me to take care of myself in some capacity, um, it was the first time I, I did that. It was the first time I felt like I deserved it. Um, or not even deserved it, was desperate enough, I guess, to do it. And I went and it, 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 I, it just ended up being, it ended up being this catalyst for me to be on my own side and to figure out what that looked like. Um, because I didn't know what that looked like before to truly be on my own side to let myself love and like myself not just love myself like oh no matter who you are i like you but also being like ashley ford you have a bad attitude and i like that about you <laughs> because i do um yeah i went there and and it helped me understand once and for all, really. Um, not that I won't ever have to go back, but um, it really helped me understand what felt like once and for all, that self-abandonment was no longer on the table. Offering my integrity um, and my, my love and commitment to myself up for other people's comfort was, was no longer an option. Denying my reality so that I could cling to a fantasy, no longer an option. And it's not that I wouldn't be inclined to do those things. It's just that even though it's my first inclination, I, I have now what feels like a built-in second inclination to interrogate that and to ask myself some hard questions about what I believe and and what I'm doing, what I'm trying to do, what my true intentions are. It was really easy growing up for my mom to convince me that I didn't know myself, that I didn't know my own thoughts, that I didn't know my feelings and intentions because she needed someone to blame. She needed it to be someone's fault sometimes when things went wrong. And she needed me to claim that fault, claim that blame. And I learned how to do that. And I did it for a lot of people for decades. At some point, I had to ask myself, is it true, Ashley, that you are terrible? Is it true that you are inconvenient? Is it true that you are burdensome? Is it true that you are malicious? Is it true that you intend to hurt and harm? And the answer was like, it's not true now. And it wasn't true then either. And I'm so sorry. I felt such, I 
felt so sorry for the versions of myself who had to live under the weight of that belief because mm-hmm. um, they deserved better the whole time. And it was, that was in order to finish the book, you were saying, like you had to kind of get through, (laughs) like the writing kind of brought you to that place and you had to, you had to do that before you could finish. Yeah, Yeah, because writing isn't therapy. People like to believe it is. They ask me all the time, I bet it felt like therapy. I bet it felt so therapeutic (laughs) to write this book. And I'm like, absolutely not. The book was just what reminded me of what I needed to talk about in therapy. (laughs) That's all, you know, the book, just sometimes you're writing and especially writing nonfiction and something comes up, right? Like you're writing and then all of a sudden, like you're writing something that is true, but that you didn't remember until it was coming out of the tips of your fingers. And it occurs to you that like, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute. That happened. I did that or that was done to me. I said that or that was said to me, whatever it was. And now I got to go talk to Peter about it. And, you know, it's it's a lot, but it's all useful into. It's all useful in the pursuit of becoming who you are, of letting yourself be who you are. Yeah. Can I ask what the the part of the book you hadn't been able to write yet was? It was the end. Mm. It was the last um, three chapters, I believe. I just, I had pieces. I had, you know, a little bit of like a vision, but I couldn't figure out how I wanted it to end. Um, because I think that I had this inclination at the time that people were going to be just so dissatisfied <laughs> with my ending, which in a lot of cases, a lot of people were, um, they, like, I've the message I've gotten most is that like, I fully expected there to be more. And I turned the page and it said like acknowledgements. And I was like, ah, <laughs> you know, like, and I understand why, but you know, I realized that that was the place where it needed to end um, because that ending was a beginning. And I, I, am, I, I felt like that was, in a lot of cases, the point of writing the book and, and of, of the story, of telling the story, um, is that we get a lot more new beginnings than we thought we would. And we also are bringing our entire selves and our entire stories and our entire lives with us to every new beginning. For anyone who is, uh, hasn't yet read your book and is maybe going to, well, not so not to spoil it, but for somebody who hasn't read your book, can you say a little bit about the ending, how it ends, how you chose to end it? I chose to end it with, what was, hmm, let me think of this really quickly. I tried to end it with some earned hope. I tried to end it at a point where it was clear that um, everything I always wanted was kind of on the table for me. 
and that that was the first time that was true. Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshawood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at Lit Hub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com. If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.